to the beyondthebaselines.com podcast, coming to you from Vero Beach, Florida, and Marion, Massachusetts. Hosted by Ed Chenopy, this is the podcast that researches and investigates the club management and facility side of our business. Hello, and welcome to the beyondthebaselines.com podcast. I'm Ed Chenopy, I'm your host, and each week, it's my pleasure to bring you the news and the views from the private members club industry. How the media views tennis, both at the major tournaments and at the private members club, is so important to our industry. Last year, we brought on the podcast a publisher of Rackets magazine, and this summer, we've recorded a conversation with one of the leading British writers covering tennis, Amisha Savani. As this is a rather timeless piece, we thought we'd bring it out as we head into the colder autumn months with the memories of summer 2023 in our mind's eye. Amisha has written a book, The People's Wimbledon, a cocktail table book, and it's aimed at the people, as she says, priced right for all to enjoy. She believes that Wimbledon is actually a tournament for the people. We discuss the differences between the four major tournaments, the romance of the French Open, the tradition of Wimbledon, and the almost crassness in comparison to New York's U.S. Open. We look at how the majors have changed over the years, with the roofs, ticket prices, and the place that tournament play rests and exists within the tennis and private members club industry. We chat about all the various venues that tennis has either started, continues to be played at, or has sadly left and wonder why some venues are better for tennis than others and why. With that in mind, we ask how accessible tennis might be in the UK and the USA, and if tennis is still viewed as an elite club sport, as it is still so heavily played at private clubs. Speaking with a Brit such as Amisha, it brought me back to my own days playing on the grass at Queen's Club and the All England Club, and I recount a few of my own tennis adventures in England. But before I let you into a little of my own personal history, I'd like to remind all our listeners of just what we do here at BeyondTheBaselines.com. We are the leading team of consultants for country clubs and have worked with clubs both here in the USA and there in Amisha's Britain. Please call us on 508-538-1288 if you have any questions or feel there might be a need at your club for management consultancy. Simple things like which ball machine might be best for the club all the way to compensation questions and advice for your professionals, department heads, and even general managers. But now, without any further ado, here is the writer of the People's Wimbledon and tennis player herself extraordinaire. Here's Amisha. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Beyond the Baselines podcast. I'm Ed Shanafi, your host, and this week we have Amisha Savani, who is an author living in London, writes about tennis, but has a whole host of other things she wants to talk about. I have a list of them here. Uh, Amisha, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Ed. It's wonderful to be here. It's, it's an actual, an absolute honor. Um, I know it's a long time coming, and thank you for your patience, because we've been trying to get this date in the diary for a while, haven't we? All my my fault, actually. No, it's it's a mutual thing, but you've been busy. You've been busy writing and, and working. And uh, and obviously watching tennis, um, which is your which is the love of your life, tennis. And um, and I thank you here. Obviously, it's Friday night there. So it's a great date night with Ed here. Um, <laughs> anyhow, I wanted to start out, you know, it's the French Open. And, and and I'm just, you know, talking about this. This is my favorite time of year when I lived in London. And a lot of people don't know I lived there for a long time. So I, I know the spring in London is like cabin fever comes out. Um, your weather isn't the best. And we're all watching Roland Garros and, you know, bunch of upsets in the first round. Um, but what do you love about the Roland Garros clay 
and then going into Wimbledon prep and Wimbledon on the grass. It's just a wonderful uh, transition. Tell us, have you been to the French? Have you been, you've been to Wimbledon? Tell us a bit of your thoughts on that. Um, I have indeed been to the French. I've been to the French twice. Um, I have been to Wimbledon every year. Um, It is also my favorite time of year. I think spring is my favorite season anyway, because it's just a sign of new beginnings. It's a sign of the tennis season as as we know it, you know, tennis in the sunshine, be that clay or grass. But I love this transition. I, I actually, I particularly like the fact that the French have um, scheduled their their tournament earlier in order to allow a bit of a, a break between the two. But it's almost like watching two sports, don't you think, Ed? Because the, it requires such different skill sets as a player to play on clay and then suddenly to transition on grass. Play being so much slower and things, you know, the the actual the way the body moves and the sliding and everything, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're in the grass court season. And these same, very same players then have to sort of uh, play much lower to be able to play on grass. And, uh, but it's it's just fascinating. I, I mean, in terms of the French Open, you can't even compare it to Wimbledon. They are like completely separate sports in a way. I, before I traveled to other slams, I had this very naive thinking that the slams are like a, um, a sort of franchise, if you like, in that they all pretty much work the same. They they do and they don't. Um, and in a way, it's nice that they don't because they all have their individual personality, like, you know, four different people. And I just love the personalities um, that we get from all of the slams. So the French Open, you know, that the French fans are just wonderful. I, I think that um, the way they wear their heart on their sleeves, the way they they're very musical in a way, aren't they? Some of them actually, they bring trumpets and stuff on court and then they sing along that, you know, they've got that allay kind of chant. And I think that's just, um, it's beautiful. Allay, 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 allay. Yeah. It's a bit like football, you know, or soccer over here. Right. And then, and then you have that and the whole transition then to the British grass court season is is huge it's a huge transition because suddenly you're on the british grass courts and suddenly you are you know you can't be singing and it's quiet please as they say and um you like rather rather different women? yeah it is different and um the french is uh, to me uh i've been to french i i love i loved being there um it's the most intimate of the of the of the um of the four it's it is definitely um smaller and intimate and and and, you know you you just think of france and you think of romance and i kind of you know i mean you call me the american you know i want to be an anglophile and i love the french um to me it was a it was a romantic tournament um you're there in the bois de boulogne and it's just you're in the middle of paris i love it i love the french I, i think it's a great way to start the season um it gets people as a pro i don't know if they ever even think about this but it it it, the clay allows you to produce a stroke. And there was this um, discussion just recently with the USTA. They've been talking about it forever over here. Like, you know, we don't have that many clay courts. And then apparently the story came out that Franco in Spain had this thing when he was, you know, the emperor or whatever, president, when he was basically a dictator, um, that he built all these clay courts throughout Spain. And that is why Spain has so many wonderful players right now because of Franco. 
Um, but the clay is a way to produce a stroke. And I think it's a great way to start the season um, because players are coming. Well, they've obviously been in Australia in January, but I think I see that as the end of the season. Um, the, the new birth, as you say, the spring. Uh, my favorite week when I was working on tour as a chair umpire was the week where um, it was the second week of France of the French. And I think it was the the qualifiers for the Queens club for back in the day when I was working, it was Stella Artois. Um, but the Queens club is a great club. Um, and that's a great tournament again, very intimate. And so it was a nice movement for the pros for the men pros. So the only men play at Queens, I think the women play at Eastbourne, mm. um, but take me through what you think about Wimbledon, because that's your, well, you've written a book and, uh, yeah, the people's Wimbledon. And I, I and and I it's the name of the book, right? Correct. The people's Wimbledon. Correct. Correct. And and I think it's a wonderful name because when I first went to Wimbledon, I didn't see it as a people's tournament. I saw it as kind of an upper crust tournament. And you know, you have these debentures in the in the in the, in the you know in the main in the in the center of court debentures. I didn't even know what the word meant. And um Tell me what your view of Wimbledon is now. I'm sure it's changed since I've been there a few years ago. Um, but your book and and what you see about Wimbledon and how it affects tennis in the UK. Wow, that that is a question, uh, and I'm going to break that question down. Please uh, do. In terms of uh, Wimbledon and the people's Wimbledon, we decided to call it that simply because the book it's a coffee table book, but it is part. Uh, history, part art, part people's own memories of Wimbledon. And when, when when I say people, I mean those are people that can be the general fan, like you and me, um, an umpire, uh, a former player, um, anyone who is passionate and loves Wimbledon. And we we interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people for this book. Um, and it really is the voice of the people as opposed to the voice of the player or any other viewpoint. Um, also about the book, although it's a coffee table book, it is priced at a very, very good level for a coffee table book. And we purposely wanted it like that. And that is what we discussed with. And that is one of the reasons why we went with the publisher that we've gone with, because it's a very affordable price range. Again, for the people, we actually... We're very lucky in getting um, a couple of publishing offers for this book. And one of the main reasons we went with this publisher as opposed to others was because others would have pitched it at a much higher price. And we didn't want that. There have been many books written about Wimbledon. In fact, many coffee table books, the, you know, the Bible, you know, the history of lawn tennis, the history of Wimbledon, um, center court, uh, uh, um, a history. All of those are, are fantastic. But ours is very different because it's broken up into it's a bit there's something for everyone. I'd like to say there's part history book, part art and 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 part people's memories. So that is why we called it the People's Wimbledon. In terms of Wimbledon itself, um, your question was about how it's changed. You haven't been there for a few years, for example, right? It's changed. Yeah. Has it changed and, and has it become, and, and perhaps your book is the fore, uh, forerunner of this, has it become more of a people's, how can I say it? Has it become more of a people's tournament? I mean, do, do people go there, take it away and go back to their local David Lloyds and say, hey, we 
Wimbledon was fantastic. You know, um, do you see that happening? Um, and, and do you feel that it's changed in any way in the last, say, I, I think I haven't been there in about 10 years, in the last 10 years? Right. So I would say definitely Wimbledon is the only slam where you can rock up on the day and get a ticket. That is That would require queuing or even camping overnight, but no other slam gives you that facility. Um, so yes, it is for the people in that respect, because actually it's those people that camp who are the ones that, that are rewarded with the very best seats, even better, I would almost argue than those debenture seats because I've been lucky enough to to sit on at you know to have debenture tickets but I have also seen the tickets that people get from queuing overnight and they are the best seats and rightfully so so it's one slam that really does reward its true fan um yes there are corporate seats but in order to finance uh, the upkeep and 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 you know all those things you do need corporate seats and also you need the profile that the corporate seats um, allow. But I do think that Wimbledon is 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 for the people as well as of course those people that that get those debenture seats and the hospitality. In terms of how it's changed, uh, I I would say the most fundamental change in the past say ten to fifteen years are the two roofs on centre court and court number one. I mean, I, I know you, yeah, you've, you've lived here before, so you know how much it rains here. Um, yeah. That has made a massive difference. Um, so, so you know, prior to those roofs, there, there had been years where, uh, due to bad weather, the, the tournament had to be, um, extended uh, beyond the, the final Sunday to the to a, to a Monday or yet yeah, to Monday Tuesday. or I think even a Tuesday. But yeah. uh, and actually that's that's another thing that just shows it really is a tournament for the people because in at the time when at what when it was extended it was extended to allow um, anyone to be able to turn up and get the best seats on that surprising Monday. Sunday. Don't they call it the People's Sunday? Somewhat similar to your the, book, the People's so, Sunday. So yeah, the, the, the People's Sunday, actually that's true. The People's Sunday, that's the- um, The Sunday, if they have to, they exactly. play the Sunday, if they're behind schedule, they they open the door. Well, well now they, they play the middle Sunday. Um, since last year they, they've now Sunday used to be a, a day off but now they do play on the middle Sunday as well now so that's another change actually for change. over the past 10-15 years and then there's been I would say sort of smaller but significant changes like uh, there is no final set um, going on game many many games yeah, it's now right. you know uh, if the score no reaches, 18-16s anymore exactly which which in a sense I I miss because I think there was something rather nice, I suppose, something rather romantic about not knowing when a match could go on and, and those matches could go on and on and on. You know, you've got, um, for example, the Isna Mahu match um, oh. and we will no longer have any of those matches anymore, no. which is a shame. But I can completely understand that for the um, well-being of the players, it, it was quite important to do that. Well, well-being of the players, because they can't, whoever wins that match probably is not going to compete well in the next round. Um, exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, there's been other minor things like there's I, I and I've noticed this more over the past couple of years. There's now more of a, a conscious effort to from Wimbledon to measure its carbon footprint and sustainability. Now, 
the food comes in um, recycled packaging, card and plastic. The drinks are now in recycled glasses um, and they encourage you to return those glasses to get some of your money back. So it's things like that that uh, you can tell they have they've really taken seriously. And then, of course, you know, along with the modern times, it is it has become rather cashless from being cash only, which actually wasn't very long ago. I remember I, I used to join the queue and you'd get the stewards walking through and warning everyone that uh, it's cash only. So if you need to, if you haven't got any cash, we suggest you duck out of the queue and go to the local cash point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's those little things which, but it's, it's, it's yet still managed to retain its history and its tradition. And that, that's what I love about it. At Beyond the Baselines, we have over 25 years of experience with management of private members' clubs and boutique resorts. Whether it's finding the inefficiencies caused by the blurring of roles between management and board governance, managing a single department, or educating and mentoring a key employee, we have served the private members' club industry like no other consultancy since 2007. Partnering with club governing bodies and working alongside management, we bring a team of highly specialized and experienced experienced associates for that personal touch and hands-on management style to achieve long-term goals with short-term results. At Beyond the Baselines, we understand the traditions and importance of membership, but history and connections to a bygone era shouldn't inhibit growth. In fact, we believe they can be a catalyst for change. So please visit our website at beyondthebaselines.com or give us a call at 508-538-1288. That's 508-538-1288. Let me ask you a question about coaching over there, because I, I know you're a student of the game. You, you, you play yourself. Um, and I always thought it was funny over here. We have, and, and I talked about this with, uh, on a podcast just recently on somebody else's podcast over here. We have director of rackets. We have director of tennis. I'm a director of tennis um, over there. You have head coach which to me sounds in a way uh, like you're focusing on coaching at a club and yet at a David Lloyd or at, uh, or a Hurlingham or a Queens, there's so much admin behind the scenes. How do you see coaching at say a David Lloyd, like a head coach, what's that person's operation what do they do do they just focus on coaching do they work on member hospitality member service how do you see it are you a member of a club and do you play at a club and 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 how do you see coaching so yes i am a member of a club um and i do get coaching i need coaching um how i see coaching from my point of view as a i would call myself a beginner improver player is that, um, so at my club, there are a few coaches. Um, I'm not aware of the various title hierarchies there, which is a good thing. I don't think there need to be so many title hierarchies. Um, But what I will say is that clubs in the UK, it's quite an interesting thing. If you were an interested tennis player and you weren't a member of a club and you wanted to join a club, because that would be the natural thing to do uh you from what i've experienced and what i've noticed you're discouraged from joining the club 
before you've had a few lessons. It is actually, it is actually, I know I'm, I, it, it sounds quite shocking to say that, but it is actually stipulated in, um, and I won't mention it, but my, the club, the website of the club I'm a member of, that sh should you be interested in joining, we strongly advise that you take some lessons. In fact, at my club, when you do join, you are um, required. <laughs> yes, and you're auditioned. There's there's two people uh, who are from the club who will uh, play you to mm -hmm. measure your your level so that they can uh, know what level you are to pitch you against um, similar level people. So I think it's a shame in a way because it sort of almost discourages someone from applying if, if they don't think they're good enough. Um, so a lot of the coaching does, it does happen at club level, but I think that uh, the level that people get coaching at is much higher than, say, beginner improver level, because by the time they've joined that club, they are of a certain level anyway, particularly the very well-esteemed clubs, shall we say. If you're going to join, for example, Queen's Club, I don't think you can join Queen's Club unless you really know how to hit a forehand or a backhand or Hurlingham, I guess, and certainly Wimbledon. So that's where we are. I think that the majority of people who have never picked up a tennis racket before and are curious about getting some lessons will probably get them at the public parks where there are some fantastic coaches and there are leagues in the public parks as well. Yes. I, well, you, you take me to a, a topic that I, I kind of had, had talked about with you off the air, which is uh, about the, the eliteness of the game. Is it still there? I mean, I'm a pretty good tennis player. You know, I, I play collegiate tennis, um, I was an ATP umpire. I had a lot of connections. I did play at Queens. I played when I lived there. I played at Hurlingham. Um, I was offered a membership at Queens. Uh, played at Cumberland Lawn Tennis up in uh, Hampstead and Black. I was president of the club at Blackheath uh, Rugby. It, it's called the club because it was the first the club. It's over here too. We have the the country club, the first in Boston. Um, is tennis still like that, or is there a great sense of of up and coming players on the public or semi quasi public courts or the David Lloyds or, or what have you, the smaller um, tennis clubs is, is, is that sport growing there is tennis growing in that, in that area? Um, that's a really good question. I, I don't know if tennis is growing. I suppose it is growing in that area because I'm very aware that a lot of the public courts now offer leagues so there's a lot of people who don't even bother joining clubs because they're very happy playing in those various leagues on in, at those public courts some of, of of which in London are very very well known for producing some great players and and coaches as well uh Hyde Park tennis courts Regent Park tennis courts are quite they've got some serious players there I've I've often walked past there and um when I've looked at the the standard of play I'm quite impressed I have to say um, you touched on something about whether I think tennis is still mainly an upper class sport here. And my answer to that question would be yes and no. Um, I think, uh, yes, because I think it could be made a lot more accessible. Um, I think even some of the public courts here, 
in and I'm talking about central London, charge £25 an hour to play. And there's quite a few people who won't be able to afford that. Uh, I know that in some parts of the States, public tennis courts are for the public, i.e. free. And I think that's in LA, if I'm not mistaken. But And I completely understand that there's a lot more land there, so they can do that. Whereas London, we're a lot more... Um, short of, of of space and land so and also for the upkeep you have to pay I get that but I would say that the problem here in terms of the restrictions with playing are weather so for example if you are in the middle of the winter you've got um, public courts that are largely concrete mm. and they are very slippery even when there hasn't been any rain so you've got dew in the morning or frost in the mornings and it's not the best place to play. Ideally, you'd want some public courts that are indoor, but there aren't. So to play indoor, to play all year round, your only option really is to join a club. And that's where it becomes difficult for someone who can't afford that. Um, I go past my own club most days um, on the tube, it overlooks the club. and. Early mornings, even mid-mornings, mid-afternoons, often those courts are completely deserted. And it just makes me think every time I go past them, I wish something could be done. Whilst I understand that you can't have courts that are, you wouldn't want courts that are 24-7 occupied. I think when you have chunks of time where nobody's playing on them, it would be really wonderful somehow to maybe open them up to people to maybe with a view to trying out the sport or even um, just to open it out for, for people who haven't had a chance to pick up a racket to be able to play. But I appreciate there are so many um, limitations and things to be taken into consideration. Um, you mentioned David Lloyd, and I think, yes, David Lloyd is a great um, chain of, of, of gyms. Um, for those who aren't familiar with that outside of the UK. But I would say even with David Lloyd, not all of them have tennis courts. You'd have to go out into the suburbs of London right. to, to play at a David Lloyd club, which has a tennis court. And of course, that also requires um, a commitment as in a membership. I think the LTA each year have, they've talked about it, injecting funds into making tennis, grassroots tennis and making it um, accessible for all, but I've yet to see it make enough of a difference. So I think a lot of um, work has yet to be done on that. And I'd like to see it become so much more accessible than it is. I think it was, I'd, I'd be very curious to hear about your experience because you've played at the best clubs. I think Cumberland, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't that, I mean, it's one of the oldest, but wasn't that one of the ones that Bjorn Borg practiced at before his Wimbledon wins? We, yeah, we had a lot of, um, uh, the history of Cumberland is pretty big. Yeah, I think Borg practiced there on the, because they had, when I was there, they used to have eight grass. When I was there, I think they had four or five and they had banks because, you know, Hampstead's hilly. So you had a bank here and then you had another bank up here and then another bank. So you were looking up. Um, but yeah, Cumberland had a lot of history. Um, obviously, you know, Queens Club, uh, Hurlingham has uh, has that uh, always has events before and after for fundraising and charitable giving um, and the grass as well. 
Um, but Cumberland was a great club for me. I played for their first team. Um, we used to go as, and that's how I about know about David Lloyd. We'd go out to like North, North London, up the M1 a bit. We'd go to play a, a David Lloyd there. Then we would go play, you know, a David Lloyd out towards uh, Reading or Berkshire or somewhere out there. And it was, it, I had a great, it was great tennis. I played with this French Frenchman. He was phenomenal. I, he, he carried me through the season or two, two seasons. Um, but we, we had, a, I had a great time, great, great people. Um, and Cumberland's not that, I mean, like, it's not like a Hurlingham where I think you, there's a wait list for nine years, you know, Cumberland, if you're a good player, you're probably going to get in six months to a year. Um, if they want you on the team, you get right in there. So it's, it's, as you said, some, I mean, I didn't have to be, you know, go play two lessons. I didn't have to take two lessons. They kind of saw me and they said, Hey, you want to be a member? Um, but you know, it brings up, uh, you'll love this story. It brings up my story of when I played at Wimbledon. And, um, so I was, uh, captain of the London school of economics team. And that team was kind of thrown together. It's kind of a fun, fun time. Uh, we yeah. had two, yeah, we had two Americans and plus me, three Americans, one from Princeton. who was a junior abroad, one from Haverford. So Princeton's D1, one of the best college teams in the country over here. Um, Haverford was a, is a solid, I think it's D3, might be D2 team. He played number one there. And then me, and then we had our token British player, one Englishman. And then we had two subs who were British. Um, but we played all, we played everybody and we played, you know, University of Reading, University of Southampton, um, Cambridge, you know, all, we had, had so much fun. And, uh, and, and so I, we, we played, we practiced in Lincoln's Inn, which is a really public park. I was just going to ask you that very question because I know that area very well. And I was going to say, where are the courts? Where, I, I played at Lincoln's Inn Field as well. Yep. Um, and I was wondering if that's where you played because they're, they're on the doorstep of London School of Economics, aren't they? That's it. That's, I mean, the school basically yeah. surrounds that square. <laughs> I think uh, the top of the square is uh, the John Sloan Museum, but on the, the south side of the square is all London School of Economics. And I think the, the school has actually expanded now even more around the square. So we were there and it's it, even though that then it's 30 years ago, God, I don't want to date myself, but, and, and, and practice. And, and, you know, we all brought a, a snack for the homeless. It was quite a, quite a, a happening. So we had practices and then we had games and we played and practiced with the women's team. And um, the, the, the captain of the ladies team was this woman, woman named Zoe. And I was just infatuated. I'm 22, 23. She's a great tennis player, Greek looking athletic. And, um, and so I asked her out and she kind of passed, you know, passed it off. And so then Zoe so your, invited your tennis um, experience was like, almost like a dating agent. Well, you know, with the girls team, you know, back then. So uh, thanks. <laughs> I was the only way I could find a date. Um, and our coach was American. It was Rich Kaufman, who was the chief umpires, uh, chief of umpires for the ATP tour. He was our coach. And our sub our assistant coach was this good looking guy named Roger. And we no, tried out with him. Then. <laughs> Hold on. So Roger was this good looking guy and I was, you know, he's older. And so yeah, Zoe invites me to her 21st birthday, you know? So I was like, Hey, I kind of didn't fight. So I go and, and she, at the party, she says, Hey, and, and Dave Katz was the, um, was the guy from Princeton. Hey, Ed, Dave and Ed, do you want to play mixed doubles with my friend or our, our friend Valerie at, at, at our club tomorrow? I said, sure. I almost gave it away there. So I said, what do we, what do, where do we get off the tube? She goes, Southfields. So we get off at Southfields the next day and get, Dave and I, you know, as two American men get in the back of a mini 
We go through the gates of the All England Lawn Tennis Club, and I turn to Dave and I go, Dave, got your whites? <laughs> you know, and we get on the court. Fantastic. And, and uh, she goes, um, Oh, I couldn't get Valerie to play, so my dad's going to come out and play with us. It's this guy, Roger. Yeah. Roger Taylor. Zoe's last name was Taylor. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, oh, no. We Roger had a, Taylor. Uh, Roger Taylor. And uh, and uh, we had to we had to play great. Dave is a great player. And uh, fortunately, I, I was a little nervous, but we, we 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 beat Roger and Zoe, but it was close. And Zoe's a hell of a player. So, we had, you know, those are the stories that where tennis takes you. And I have a fond memory of playing tennis over there. From the kitchens to the courts, the practice tees to the waterfront, Beyond the Baselines is your partner to find the best in-class employees for your club, facility, or resort. Beyond the Baselines is the leading executive search firm for private members clubs and boutique resorts. Whether you are a member-owned club or a corporate hotel entity, we are the specialists for you in elite hospitality. It's not just the members that should feel loyalty to their club. It's the sense of loyalty combined with the pride of offering superior service and hospitality in every worker that makes a good club that much better. Call us today at 508-538-1288. So find that right candidate with us today or visit us on the web at beyondthebaselines.com. Let me ask you another, one more thing about your, you had an article that came out for, and I, I want to say you, you, you write for Quartz Magazine, yes. um, which is a quarterly over there. And I know it's French and English and the English writing is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for writing it. I read a well, couple of articles uh, in, in preparation of this podcast, but you wrote about Lacoste. And over here, I'm very close with the cost. It's it's um it's taking off over here. What I'm wondering is your article is so nice uh, about how it's it it's really aimed at the women's fashion because the men's fashion for for Lacoste has always been there, but now they're really reaching out to women. Is that a way to get more women playing tennis? Is is it Lacoste onto something here? I mean, obviously they're trying to get better sales, but what's your feeling about that? Now that's a that's really um, a good point because I would I, I think what's happening anyway in tennis wear is or or in athletic wear is that there is now this fusion between sport and fashion, but I would say of all the brands the tennis brands Lacoste has really led the way there. Um, their creative team have cottoned on to this a while ago now. So what they do is they do collaborations um, with very either up and coming brands or street brands or brands that are very in vogue. And I think those collaborations have been a massive hit because they're exclusive, they are for a short period only, and they are high fashion. So Lacoste, I mean, Lacoste did a collaboration with Netflix, which they've still got going at the moment, believe it or not. I mean, you know, the popularity of the two. So they've, but Lacoste has always been an innovator. He always, uh, as, a, as a designer, he wanted to do something that nobody else did. He was the first person who put a logo on an on item of sports clothing. So they've really carried on that legacy, whether it's going to um, get more, more women playing tennis, 
I, I don't see why not, because it's such a beautiful fashion that you'd want to wear it on court um, and showcase it in, in the place it's meant to be showcased for. I, I think it's beautiful. I love the label. And um, I, I think it's a great um, comeback to the, the, I don't want to say the golden times of tennis, but those halcyon days, let's say halcyon days um, of tennis where, um, you know, and I think this is kind of where you're writing and where your magazine is, is, is that you work for is, is going. It's trying to uh, enjoy tennis through a limelight from the past. And in and, and that article you wrote about Lacoste, I think Lacoste is, is um, really bringing tennis back to a fashion center centric. Um, you know, I'm not bad mouthing Adidas or Nike in any way, but Lacoste has a tradition that none of those other lines have. And mentally for women, I think that makes a massive difference for them being comfortable in those clothes. Absolutely. And I know I was watching this and I, I can't remember her name. There's this woman that's like number 20 in the world and she's got her own label as well. You, you might know it. Um, and I went and Googled her, her label and it's beautiful clothing. She was wearing it. I was like, what is that label? And it's her own. I mean, obviously Venus has done it with 11, yeah. I guess. Ostapenko uh, has done it as well now. Yeah. But this woman's clothing was, again, hearkening back to yes. the look of the 60s, the, the high socks and, and, and trying to, I guess, you know, bring that back so that women particularly feel comfortable. And, and there you go. I guess this year is the first year that women can wear uh, colors uh, yes. underneath their skirts. Yes. Um, so even Wimbledon is noticing a little change in um, in fashion. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, it's, it's funny, you've just mentioned this, because I, I got an email update, you know, I'm on the circulation list for Wimbledon and their new uh, Wimbledon range for the summer. I, I think that they're all onto something amazing. And going back to Lacoste, Lacoste was the original tennis player, the, the, the tennis designer. So you've got the Nikes and the Adidas and all of those. But Lacoste is true tennis compared to them all. I, I love the brand, um, and I and I tell. think what we will see, we will definitely see more tennis players launching their own ranges, like you say, like Venus, and um, I, I'd love to know who this player is. I'm going to look it up afterwards. Mm, and I Ostapenko. I, I will. Uh, I'll email it to you. I have to look it up because I'll, I'll look back at my history. Yeah, and I and I think this hark back to the past. I tell you another brand that's done that is Penguin. Um, Ayla Tomjanovic is signed with Penguin and uh, she has, you've seen her wearing things um, like the really top buttoned up polo shirts, or very 1950 style, yes, yes. And then the pleated skirts. And it's, it's a real hark to almost the uh, sort of art deco age and stuff. And I think it's wonderful. Exactly. It's, it's good to see some flair in this sport. And I think it needs a bit more flair. I, I don't see why not. So the Jeremy Paxman in me, I'm going to use this as a conduit to our next question. I love Jeremy Paxman. Uh, so, do, so do I. And and I still, I like Fiona Bruce too, his replacement, yes. but I miss the Dimbleby years. Uh, yes. let, let, so you bring me to my next question, which is, and I can look like Jeremy Paxman too a little bit, um, pickleball. And I know you want to talk about pickleball, but this is a great, a great conduit or a great transition yeah. because Lacoste is not cheap. 
Okay, folks, you know, a Lacoste men's shirt over here is $120. Yes. It's not inexpensive. Pickleball over here is popular. It, I think clubs and facilities are finding it difficult to monetize it because it is a group of people that don't spend a lot of money. They're not going to go buy a Lacoste shirt, most likely. Maybe that will change. It might. I know several famous celebrities, Tom Brady included, have bought professional pickleball teams thinking it's going to grow. I also see over here Padel growing from the south up. And um, if and, and, and I want to make a distinction over there. I think you call it paddle over here. I don't know if you call it paddle or we call Padel paddle here. No, I say, yeah, I tend to say Padel as well. Padel, I tend to yeah, say Padel, paddle, tomatoes, yeah. tomatoes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Neither, neither. We could be a Gershwin song. Um, so as you think about it, uh, you look at these sports, two, two sports taking over. And I think over there you have um, what you call touch tennis, too. What do you think of these other sports encroaching? Do you see it as a threat to tennis? Do you see it as a threat to real estate? Because it's tight real estate in London um, and your inner cities there. Um, how do you see pickleball and Padel working? I don't see them as a threat to tennis per se, because I think they are not tennis. They are what I would call adapted tennis. Same with touch tennis. Um, but I do see uh, pickleball isn't as um, hasn't taken off as as much as paddle paddle has over here. Um, there has been there have been many tennis clubs have now um, built over their tennis courts to accommodate say a couple of paddle courts and that is what I see as being a bit scary because and and you can see it from a profitability point of view because in the space of say one tennis court you can build two paddle courts I and four and four pickle courts right okay I didn't realize that but the Mm. thing is Padel's very expensive to build a court. I believe it's something like sixty thousand pounds. You know the 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 white. Um, I'm just researching this for a club here. It it depends on where you are. I, obviously, yeah. if 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 you're in a in a wind zone like on the coast, it's a it's it's yeah the the foundation cost. It's not so much the the glass, mm-hmm. but it's the drilling into the cement, the cement base. Exactly. Um, that that does cost, but it's not as expensive as as I had thought. But yes, it, it, you know, sixty thousand pounds sounds a little high, but you know, maybe forty thousand pounds, depending. And it depends on what you're building it on. You know, if you're, you know, they have these portable ones too, portable padel courts. So, but yeah, and pickleball too. Pickleball is not inexpensive. It's a it's a it's a cement foundation as well. Expensive. Uh, absolutely. I I mean I, I'm going to reserve judgment until I try them. And when I say try, I'm going to definitely try Padel. Um, and I really want to, I'm very, very curious to see what it's like. But it's nothing's going to, you can't compare it to tennis. It's it's a different, it's a bat. It's not a racket. Um, it feels and sounds different, I, I think. it's a, I think it's completely different. Um, what I would say is of those adapted tennis sports, for me, by far, my favorite I would pick would be touch tennis. And the reason why is because touch tennis is much closer to tennis than the, than the other two. You play with a racket, albeit a junior-sized racket. Um, and it's not a tennis ball. It's a dense foam ball, which has been 
uh, designed over many years to ensure that it's the type of ball that would be able to have uh, to, to have a bounce on any surface, be that an uneven concrete surface in a car park, be that on uneven grass in a public park or in someone's garden. And the thing I love particularly about touch tennis is that you don't have to have any fancy club membership or um, play anywhere membership to play it. You can set it up in a car park. You can set it up on, on your driveway. You can set it up in a garden, in a park. And the equipment is fairly um, inexpensive. And it's all born from one person, Rashid Ahmed, whose idea was, it was born from the idea because he wanted to make, a, a, he wanted to create an adapted form of tennis that was accessible for all. And it's fun. It's got shorter games, shorter sets. Um, it allows more drama. There are, there's, it's really gained traction. There are uh, British tennis players actually who are playing it. So Marcus Willis, um, for example, and also Bear Grylls, the Explorer is a huge fan. And so, and there are tournaments around the world that they, you, you anyone is encouraged to sign up and join and start playing. It's, the thing for me with tennis is, and I speak from my own experience as well, is that to be able to play the sport well, to be able to hit a forehand correctly, a serve, a backhand correctly, it takes decades to master. Whereas something like certainly touch tennis, and I would say paddle and pickleball, you can pick up within weeks, maybe months. That's yeah. the difference. And that's where those sports are likely to um, get more interest than tennis, which will take years. I completely agree with you. Uh, it's tough to learn tennis, but once you master it, it's a fantastic, phenomenal, lifelong sport, just like golf. Um, yes. Pickleball is easier to pick up. I, I do think pickleball will will peak. I, I, I kind of see it like the racquetball of the 80s uh, or late 70s, and racquetball is not really around anymore. I, I think the injury level is going to get too high on the cement. So I think pickleball will have to change for the general player, for the older players that are playing it here in the States yes. to either a hard cushion yes. or a hard clay type of surface in time. Mm -hmm. um, Padel, I don't see a stopping point. I think it's a great sport. Um, I think it's going to grow. Final question for you. If you had your dream list of a stadium to watch a tennis match, any place, any stadium, where would it be? Oh, you really got me there. Because it's so difficult to find one single stadium. Well, you're so well-traveled. I know you travel a lot. So I was oh. thinking you might look back at your experiences in India or wherever you may have been and say, I'd really like to see a final there. Okay. So for me being a Londoner and Wimbledon being the tournament that, that actually grew my interest, mm -hmm. nothing beats center court and the tranquility of that place. The fact that you can hear everything, the fact that it's, it's this, 
it is this hallowed place for tennis. It's it's um, there's so much history and glory. I never tire of being there, and I I'm always in awe every time I'm sitting there. Having said that, I went to the U.S. Open for the first time in September last September. Mm-hmm. I was on Arthur Ashe Stadium to watch my favorite player Serena Williams play her last, we think her last professional um, tennis tour. And what I loved about being there is the absolute, the 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 passion of the fans there, the fact, the screaming and the cheering, and I love I love that as much as I love the quiet of Wimbledon. So I'm torn. But if I really had to pick center court Wimbledon. So what about you? I want to ask you that question. Oh, mine's easy. Mine's easy. And I and you're going to like this because uh, I spent many years in England. Um, my favorite place would be, and because I'm musical, I, you know, I ran that music company for many, many years and I played French horn and I love music. But it, for me, where I can watch Eric Clapton do 24 nights, Sinatra, and I get to see the Masters, it's the Royal Albert Hall is for me the most special place for me to watch a tennis match. And I, 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 I was lucky enough to be a guest of the daily mail for many years at the, the event there, the tennis event, I think it's the master's tour, um, yes, which is now no longer, sadly, and yeah, I, no longer, I but I was there a lot and mm. I'd go and watch the tennis and I'd remember Eric Clapton. Um, and I'd remember seeing Sinatra there and, um, those are special concerts for me and, and, and to watch tennis there, combined in the same spot was really special it's such a beautiful place I, I I think what a wonderful choice because you're right you've 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 got memories of uh, places things you've heard uh, concerts you've been to as well as the tennis I mean it's such a beautiful location in that you can have a tennis court there or or a, a concert um, yeah. fantastic choice I I and it means a lot to me because when I was a student I lived in Knightsbridge and Hans oh, Kretzer, right behind Harrods. There. I know it very well. I, I used to work in Harrods, so I know it very, very well. I love that 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 side that of the world. little side street, right? And it's right below. For people folks that don't know, the side entrance of Harrods yes. is on Hans Crescent, and we would walk past, and and we were a basement flat, you know, and um, and there were four of us, four Americans, and uh, my one American from my college over here, Duke, was 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 one of my roomies, and um, he was a real rocker, you know. And because I was in the music business, I got two tickets front row to Sinatra when he was there. And um, oh, even this rocker now, he came out of that concert and he goes, Ed, that is unbelievable. And I said, you just saw the chairman of the board. And so yeah. for me, Albert Hall and for you is Serena at the U.S. Open. Yes, exactly. Nothing beats Serena. It's the reason I went to the U.S. Open and something um I actually have a phobia of flying. It was Serena that broke or actually that helped the phobia because I decided uh, it's a really funny story. I the reason I went to the US Open was because every year that ha- it, you know the US Open is is coming I say to myself, "Oh, next year I will go to the US Open." And something told me in back in I, I booked that ticket very late. It was I booked it in August. So something told me, you know, how many more years am I going to keep saying to myself, I must go to the US Open? So I bit the bullet. I, I, I actually was talking to my boss saying, I don't know, I, should I do it? Should I not? And she gave me this fantastic little scenario. She said, I'm going to ask you a question. 
if in 30 years time, you are sitting on your rocking chair and this question comes up, would this be one of the things that you regret? And I said, 100%. And she said, you've got your answer. You should book that ticket. So I came off that phone call. I booked the ticket. This is no joke, 100% true. I booked the airline ticket. I uh, booked the first night of the US Open. And on my phone, because I get news headlines, a headline came up. Serena Williams announces that the US Open will be her last and she is retiring or should we say evolving. And I thought this is fate because I had booked that minutes before um, I got the headline. And and anyway, the rest is history, but I got to see her twice at the US Open and yep. it was the most amazing experience. And now it's your favorite place. Well, that's your favorite stadium. Well, uh, well, than, Wimbledon and, 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 and Arthur Ashe. Center and Arthur Ashe. Uh, okay. Well, those are two good stadiums. Yes. Anyhow, Amisha, fantastic to have you on the podcast. And uh, thank you so much for your observations, your wit, your humor, your writings uh, for, this, for the sport and for, for everyone who um, enjoys tennis and, and these growing sports, these other growing racket sports. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, please don't be a stranger. And um, we, we, we were so lucky to have you here. Thank you ever so much. Thank you for having me. It has been an absolute pleasure and such good fun. And I think we can go on and on, can't we? I, I'd love to oh, hear forever. stories as well. So um, we will do that for, for another time. But um, I hope to see you in London, maybe even at Wimbledon one of these now years. Now that COVID's over, you never know. I just applied for my passport. Got to get someone That's to say it's me on the picture. Fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. And in fact, you, I'll have to show you a little gem, which is um, the tennis gallery in Wimbledon, which is my co-author Richard's shop. Um, so this is my co-author of the People's Wimbledon. He uh, owns a little shop, a tennis shop in Wimbledon, and um, it's oh, just a little gem of a place. So, so uh, we'll, there's lots of places to go. Well, if HM Customs gives me my passport, I'll be right over. So. Look That's forward to it. I, I was a naturalized citizen and I finally applied years ago. I finally applied for my passport. So uh, we'll be over. Fans coming. Good. We'll be over. I look Thank forward. you so much. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. You do. Have a good Friday night. Thank you. Thank you for listening to BeyondTheBaselines.com podcast. It's a pleasure bringing you each week's news and views and great guests from our tennis, fitness, and country club industries. You can always reach the team here at BeyondTheBaselines at gmail.com or on the phone at 508-538-1288. Please do visit our website at www.BeyondTheBaselines.com, which is updated regularly with even more information for you, your club, or your facility. See you again soon.